You may have wondered while you were singing that song, I am not familiar with this one, and this does not sound like something that I would sing on Christian radio. Um, that hymn, as I mentioned this last week, it, it went with, uh, with last week's sermon. Um, uh, that hymn was written by John Newton, the same man who wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, Newton wrote that hymn. As his friend, William Cooper, uh, was descending into madness from depression. Uh, and he desperately wanted a different outcome. And he felt like the Lord was not granting it. Uh, and so, um, maybe you've felt that way. Uh, that you've prayed for something continually and the Lord seems to be giving you the opposite answer to what you want. Uh, and as we talked about last week uh, in the sermon, uh, Newton... Newton wrote in an age of hymn writers, in an age of Christian songwriters, when maybe we were a little bit more honest uh, or a little bit more biblical. Uh, But there are those times uh, when the Lord gives the exact opposite of what we expect him to give. Uh, And when he does that, he is no less good. Uh, In fact, as, as Newton discovered in the process of writing that song, that the reason the Lord answered Newton the way that he did was because he wanted Newton to trust him more and his earthly circumstances less. Uh, and so, anyway, good song, and I'm glad that we redid it this week. Thank you, Fred and Allie and Debbie and Julian. Uh, this week should be a little bit more chipper. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 121, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, that would be good. If you are using uh, the Bible that's in the chair there, you should find it on page 516. Psalm 121 is one of the songs of ascent. You'll see that there underneath the the title. Uh, And there are 15 of these. They run from uh, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Uh, And most scholars think that the songs of ascent were used as uh, pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem. So there were three religious festivals uh, prescribed by the Old Testament uh, where Jews, so it was Passover, uh, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those were the three big religious holidays. Uh, and when those were on, every Israelite was expected to come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And so people would come from miles and miles and miles away. Uh, and as they made that journey, they would usually make that journey in family groups or uh, whole groups from whole villages would come. Uh, it's thought that they would uh, work through the songs of ascent as they went up, as they ascended to Jerusalem. They would sing these uh, songs together. So uh, here's what I want you to do. As I read this psalm, I want you to imagine yourself in a caravan of people making its way to Jerusalem for one of these worship festivals. Men, women, boys, girls, uh, whole family groups, whole village, everyone from our town is here. Uh, We've got camels and donkeys to help carry our supplies. Uh, We're bringing some sheep and goats to make sacrifices. Uh, And far off on the horizon as we go, you can see the the bluish-gray outlines of the mountains. And that's where we're going But there's a lot of road between here and there. And roads are dangerous places. Wild animals prowl at night and robbers lurk in the shadows. And so as we travel, as we journey, we begin reciting 
this psalm. And as I read it, I want you to imagine it as a, a back and forth conversation, as a, a dialogue. Uh, someone begins reading. Or rather, they wouldn't have read it. They would have recited it from memory. But someone begins with verses 1 and 2. Uh, and then someone else answers with verse 3. Now, in, in our translations, if you want to look at that real quick, um, your translation probably reads verse 3 as a, as a future tense. He will not let. But there's another way to translate that that expresses it as a prayer. May he not. And so that's the way that I'm going to read it. So someone would, uh, would answer with the, the prayer of verse 3. And then someone else would respond with this long list of promises, this long list of descriptions about God in verses 4 through 8. Now, why is that, why is that helpful? Why do I even mention that? Because as you, as you think about the Psalms as a community project, as a, as a dialogue between different people, uh, just imagine how that would have felt to have different voices in your traveling caravan have affirmed these things. It's why we do responsive readings in our worship services. It's why when I speak truth to you, you speak truth back to me. And if you're sitting out in the congregation, the people behind you are speaking truth over your shoulders and over your ears. It's a way that we encourage one another by speaking the truth to each other. So uh, as I read Psalm 121, I want you to kind of keep those things in mind. Let's stand uh, out of reverence for God's word. And I'll read Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Oh, I didn't read that the way that I said I was going to read that. May he not let your foot be moved. May he who keeps you not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word, I pray that it would become more to us than just truths to be confessed. Let me start a step sooner. Lord, I pray that it would become truth. To be confessed, that we would see it as truth, but also that it would be truth to be believed. The things in the psalm are easy to affirm with words, but maybe much harder to affirm and experience, and they take a lifetime for us to grasp. And so, Lord, would you bring your word with power to our hearts? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I read that psalm, what words did you hear repeated? It's a good tool of Bible reading, understanding the Bible. If, if you want to know what a particular passage is about, you can look for repeated words or phrases. And the one that jumps out to me 
is the word keep. He who keeps you. The Lord is your keeper. In fact, that's really the main point of the psalm right there at the beginning of verse five. That's the hinge on which everything turns. The Lord is your keeper. Now, what images come to mind as you hear that word keep? Guard, protect, secure, hold on to. Medieval castles were built with a fortified tower at the very heart of the castle. You know what that was called? The keep. And the keep was the last refuge, right? If an enemy were to breach the walls of the castle, everyone would fall back to the keep. Should all other defenses fail, you would be able to hold out in the keep. And that's what the psalm is about. The Lord is our keeper. He is the one who keeps us secure. And so we're going to look at this uh, in two ways. First, we're going to ask the question that the psalmist asked. From where does my help come? Or if you're going to say that grammatically incorrectly, but more naturally, where does my help come from? And if you know this, you're not supposed to end a sentence with a preposition. But all of us do that. It's okay. Uh, From where does my help come? And then the second question, how is the Lord our keeper? And so that's what the psalmist does. He asks the question, and it's really just one small part. He asks the question, and then the rest of the psalm is an answer to that question. It's, he, just, he just keeps piling up answers to the question, where does my help come from? And why does he do that? John Calvin, uh, pastor and writer, says that the the repetition in the psalm, uh, all of the different ways that the psalmist seems to repeat himself, seems fairly unnecessary. I mean, can't we just say something is true and be done with it? But as we meditate on that, we remember just how distrustful we are. And Calvin goes on to say that no matter how many times we have seen the Lord and experienced the Lord's protection, yet in an instant... Uh, we will jump at the fall of a leaf from a tree and forget completely that the Lord is our keeper. And so, in response to that, the psalmist makes his point several different ways. So, first, where does my help come from? The psalmist begins by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Now, that could be taken one of two ways. Either he's looking to the hills, the hills for help, as a place of refuge, uh, gods were worshipped on hilltops. I think of the, the, the Greek gods and goddesses. Where is their home? Mount Olympus. Right uh, In the Old Testament, high places were built. Uh, places of worship were built on the top of hills. Why? Well, it's thought that the, the gods lived in the sky. And so the closest I can get to the sky or, is on top of a hill or on top of a mountain. And so you would often find... Uh, Sacred places built for worship on the tops of hills. And so, in that sense, he could be saying, uh, looking to the hills as a, a false form of refuge, uh, where the false gods were worshipped. Or, another way to take it, uh, mountains are dangerous places. It's 
dangerous to lose your footing on the mountains. It's easy to trip and to fall and to hurt yourself. Uh, Robbers could hide in the shadows of mountain passes and in caves. And so it's unclear how the psalmist feels about the hills as he looks to them. But whether it's a place of refuge or a place of terror, he's asking a fundamental question. Where does my help come from? In the face of imminent danger, where does my help come from? And that's a question every single one of us asks every single day, multiple times a day. It is a fundamental question to human existence. Why? Because each one of us faces an incredible amount of uncertainty every single day. There are so many things we cannot control in any given day. I mean, we cannot even control whether or not we wake up. Right? Uh, We make our plans. We certainly schedule things and we, we look forward. And yet, we have no control over whatever circumstances may come our way and interrupt those plans. So our lives are full of uncertainty and even danger. And it's part of a, uh, the fault, the reality of living in the modern world. We have so much uh, technology available to us that we almost think we are kind of in control. Right? Uh, I'm in control of how I get to work. Right? I just jump in my car. How many, how many of you uh, have you know, jumped in your car five minutes late? And it doesn't start. Right? You, you know, somebody left the light on. Uh, somebody left a door open. Right? I know that never happens in your house. Um, some mechanical piece that you can't eat. Well, some of you can actually describe how that mechanical piece works. I can't. Right? But some mechanical piece is no longer working. And you didn't plan for that. Right? So much uncertainty. Every single day we ask the question, where does my help come from? This is why insurance exists, right? I have health insurance to cover unforeseen health events. I have disability insurance to cover if I become disabled and can't do my job. I have life insurance in case that I die. I have homeowner's insurance in case something breaks in my house. If you rent, you have renter's insurance, right? There's, right, insurance exists because we are looking for help. Because there are things that we cannot plan for, unknown, unforeseen threats that we might encounter. Insurance companies make great commercials out of this very reality. So all of us are looking for security. All of us are looking for someone or something to trust in. So I want you to go ahead and answer that question in your head for yourself. Where, where is your help coming from? What is your security? What are you trusting in? Maybe you're a fixer. And so you find security in your ability to get it done. If you're the person who knows how to fix a car when it doesn't turn on, there you go. Maybe it's your wealth. There's no problem money can't solve until there is. Maybe it's your friends or your reputation. I feel secure as long as I'm well thought of. By those closest to me. Your success. In life. In your calling. 
So the first aim of this psalm is to help us identify false security. What is it that you're trusting in? What are your false keepers? And that's different for every single one of us, and you probably have many, multiple, right? But the second aim of this psalm, and really the far greater part of the psalm, helps us answer that question in a good way, in a better way. And it answers it by saying, the Lord is my keeper. Now, what does that mean? How is the Lord your keeper? And I'm just going to go through. And as we go through these, I want you to to take that list of, of keepers, of false security that you came up with in your head, and I want you to compare it to the Lord. As, I, as we go through these descriptions of how the Lord is our keeper, I want you to compare and see which one is better. All right? So how is the Lord my keeper? Verse 2. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Who's greater than the hills? The one who made the hills. Who's greater than all of the dangers lurking in the shadows? The one who can see in the dark. The one from whom nothing is hidden. The one who has created everything, visible and invisible. I think we would be foolish to acknowledge that there are not invisible... I'm not a conspiracy theorist. uh, But there are invisible forces at work in our world. The Bible is very clear about that. The book of Revelation is very clear about that. Right? That the real world is actually the one we cannot see. And that is where a cosmic war is at work that would aim to overthrow the purposes of the Lord. But as the Bible is clear, the book of Revelation is clear, that does not happen. The Lord is at work even in the invisible and unseen places. He is the maker of heaven and earth. Verse 3, he cares. May he not let your foot be moved May he not let your foot slip. Think about, again, scaling a mountain. Not letting your foot slip and stumble and fall. Though we may stumble, God will keep his people ultimately from falling. And this is the the perfect answer to what we looked at last week in Psalm 88 that ended on such a dark note. Psalm 88, the psalmist cries out, in grief to a God who feels absent. I want you to imagine someone coming alongside. Imagine a friend coming alongside you in that grief and saying, He will not let your foot be moved. He will not let you fall. God is not indifferent to our struggles. That's what verse 3 tells us. And verse 2 tells us that He is certainly all-powerful. He is the maker of heaven and earth. Verse 3 tells you that he cares. He's not indifferent to your struggles. As we sang earlier, he is the love that will not let us go. The man who wrote that hymn, George Matheson, uh, he was engaged to be married. Uh, He was in seminary studying uh, to go into ministry, and he learned that he was going blind. Uh, And when his fiancée discovered that he was going blind... She broke off the engagement. She could not be married uh, to a blind man. She had to support him for the rest of their lives together, and she was unwilling to do that. And so uh, Matheson's sister 
is the one who cared for him as he, as he lost his sight. Uh, and it was on the eve of her wedding uh, when he realized that he was going to lose a sister, uh, that she was going to be betrothed to another, that he wrote that hymn. And he wrote it very, he said he wrote it almost in a moment. O love that will not let me go. That's the, that's the confidence of Psalm 121. He is the love that will not let us go. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He cares. He's vigilant. Verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is 1 Kings 18. And some of you are familiar with the story. Uh, one, of the, one of the false gods that was worshipped in Israel was a god named Baal. And in 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah faces off against the prophets of Baal. Uh, he, he issues a challenge to them. And he says this, uh, we're going to build these altars, but we can't set them on fire. So each of us is going to pray and ask our God. And whoever's God, whoever's God responds to that prayer, whichever God sets the altar on fire, that's the true God. And, and that is the God we should worship. And Elijah's a nice guy. And so he lets the prophets of Baal go first. And there's a lot of them, and there's one of them. And so they begin their chanting and their dancing, their religious ritual, and there's no answer. And so they get more fervent, right? They start shouting, and they start cutting themselves. That's how you got your God's attention. If you harmed yourself, maybe he would respond. And as this is going on, this is part of the reason why I like this chapter, Elijah gets a little saucy, a little sarcastic. He says, hey, you guys seem to be having a hard time. Maybe, maybe your God's on a journey. Uh, maybe he's out of the office. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. They don't get Baal to answer. And then Elijah prays. And fire comes from heaven and consumes the altar. Our God does not sleep. He does not leave his office. His hand never leaves the wheel. He's vigilant. He's present. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. That word means shadow. What could be closer than your own shadow? The Lord is right there. He will keep you safe from all perils, whether that's in the daytime. You can imagine in the Middle East making a journey be quite hot. Maybe not as humid as here in Alabama, but uh, quite hot. And yet he says, the sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. So whatever, whatever dangers there are to be faced, whether they walk in the day or they hide in the night, the Lord will keep you safe from them. He's present. And he's powerful. Verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. Now, this doesn't mean that life will be cushy. It doesn't mean that it will go easily. Think of Psalm 23, the familiar psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. In verse 4, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will have to walk through the deepest, darkest valley. Yet I will fear no evil. 
Right, so this is not a promise. When, the, when he says that the Lord will keep you from all evil, that's not a promise that you, we will have a, a cushy, easygoing life. But it does mean that he will keep us safe. He will keep your life, your soul, your whole existence. What does Jesus say? Every hair on your head is numbered. He's powerful. And then finally, the psalm closes with the best promise of all. His protection is complete. Verse 8. All state and farmer's insurance would love, like, would, would love it if they could get something on this, but they can't. Right? He will keep your going out and your coming in. When you leave home on that journey, wherever your journey takes you, And when you return, the Lord will keep you. When you come back home, he's got you. When you leave, he's got you. You could also read this as referring to your life, to your birth, going out, and your death, coming in. He's got you. And for how long? What's the expiration date on these promises? How long does this contract Last. Well, from now until forever. I love what Derek Kidner, he's a writer, he says this. It would be hard to decide which half of this is more encouraging. The fact that it starts from this time now or that it runs not to the end of time, but without end. Like God himself who is my portion forever. This is how the psalm encourages. This is how the Lord is our keeper. And it's not just a specific promise to each individual, but it's a general promise to Israel, his church, his people, to children afraid of the dark. The Lord is your keeper. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. To teenagers and students and adults, living under the constant spotlight of the approval of your friends, afraid of missing out, afraid of being forgotten, he will keep you. He will keep your foot from stumbling. To my single friends, Worrying that you've been left in the dugout of life. He will keep your going out and your coming in. The Lord is your keeper. Moms, feeling the pressure to prove yourself as a professional in your work and as the best mother on the face of the planet. He who keeps you does not slumber. Dads, feeling the need to protect and provide and prove yourself against all kinds of pressures. Your keeper is the Lord who made heaven and earth. To the elderly, feeling the weakness of your body and wary of approaching death. He will keep you from now until forever. The Lord is your keeper. And so you may ask, 
But how do I know this is true? That all, that all sounds great, Kevin. How do I lay hold of that? How do I make it my own? Let me answer that with the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. He says this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. But belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. And makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is the assurance of those who belong to Christ. This is the assurance of those whom Christ keeps eternally secure. Not because of your faithfulness, but because of his. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Oh, Father, that we would believe the towering promises in the psalm. Pray that each one of these lines would grab a a different part of our hearts. Lord, wherever, wherever a false security, wherever a false keeper exists, Lord, I pray that these promises would lay hold of that false security, and demolish it. That wherever we are putting our feet on shaky ground, that you would move it to the firm rock of yourself. Lord, I pray that we would trust in you. That we would know that if we are in Christ, if you have bought us with your precious blood, if you have given us your Holy Spirit, then all things in life and in death will, must, have to work together for our salvation, for our good, both now and forever. We thank you for those promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond to God's